1: underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals get more cool facts about united healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com
0: the TalkSport fan network is proudly supported by muck delivery bringing you the food you love muck delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door no matter the result Well, hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. Well, Pete, we thought we'd seen the back of them, but they're back. XGFC from the black country. Albion dominating the game against Hull City. 20 shots uh, over two XG versus Hull's 0.6. And yet we lose Um, 2-0. We thought we'd maybe... We've become a different side to this. It was all the way through Ishmael. It was all the way through Bruce. We're topping the XG tables. Even Carlos corbran said last night in the post-match interview with Rob Gurney, it's the highest XG since I've been at the club. But, I mean, look, we've said it all along. When, when we talk about a high XG, it does not mean we're complimenting this team. What it means is that we've done quite a lot of good things before the finish, but the finishing was dreadful. And last night, the finishing was absolutely dreadful, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, at the start of the season, you're, well, I'm really happy if we're generating high amounts of XG in games because it means you're performing quite well. You're creating a lot of chances. Um, and at the start of the season, that gives you hope for the rest of the season that you can continue to do that. But when you get to the end of the season, it's less about putting in good performances and more about picking picking up points. So, you know, you care about... Real goals then, um, because that's what get you, get you the points. So, despite the chance creation being quite good last night, we you know we didn't score. So that's well, that, that's the thing that matters most, and and it's where you drop, drop the points and and where we might miss out on the playoffs.
0: Absolutely, because oh, that's that's the thing at this moment in time, Pete. It is such an absolutely pivotal result, isn't it? Because as you say. If 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 you had this game earlier on in the season, and to be honest, we did have this game earlier on in the season many many times under Bruce, where we sat here and went, "Oh well, it'll come, it'll come." Don't worry. I mean, the the, the reality is, it didn't, it didn't come because we we just started conceding early goal after early goal. I don't think that will happen under Corbran. But what it does do is it puts such an enormous amount of pressure on the three games we've got before we've got a break in games um before before obviously the the millwall game on the, on the 1st of april now that the sheffield united game has been called off to, due to their participation in the fa cup and we've got we we've got three games coming up wigan huddersfield and cardiff you kind of feel like if we're going to have any chance of the playoffs we're going to need to win all three aren't we
1: yeah i think so um especially playing the early game the weekend just gone. I'm not sure when this is coming out, but you know, dropping points. Yeah, just
0: just to say, we're recording on Saturday morning, so we've got We've got absolutely no idea what the uh, what the results of um, of the other championship teams are at this point in time.
1: But thinking ahead to those games, you know, when you play the early game, you, you feel like you've got. If you pick up three points, you've got a, a brilliant advantage because you've got those three points early, and it might put a bit of pressure on those teams that are ahead of you that you're chasing or that you've potentially just passed when you drop 3 points then it's you know it's really worrying because well for a lot of teams ahead of you if you solely look at it, West Brom I know we're not the only team chasing but then it's almost a free hit they know that if they pick up a win then you know they're an extra 3 points clear and an extra 3 points ahead in the the, the race for the playoffs so this game was pivotal and and because we've lost it it makes the, the next three even more important um if we're still hoping to to break into the playoff spots
0: well, the reality is, Pete. I mean that, um, that that I think the entire top half of the championship still have some hope of the playoffs because Preston, who currently sit in twelfth, are eight points off Luton in sixth. That's not insurmountable. I think Hull, who are a point. Uh, worse off than Preston, but also a game worse off are probably out of it. I suppose, to be honest, you'd, you'd m- m- maybe make a case for Bristol City and Reading, who are on 44 points, but have a game in hand as well. So if you, if you are saying that, uh, that, that there are thir- 13, 14 teams in this playoff race, the big problem we've got is that after today's game, we could be 12th. Out of those thirteen, fourteen teams, and that's an enormous problem, isn't it? Because it's not just the amount of points that you have to make up on whoever finishes today sixth. It's how many teams you've got to clamber over because because the issue is they can't all lose every week.
1: Yeah, that's the biggest issue of where we sit in the table. Is that it's not just making up the points, is it? It's as you say, they can't all lose every week, so it's making up the points and making up the places somehow. So it means that we're going to have to go on a, a really good run, I think, if we are going to break into the playoff spots. I mean, we're not, well, currently for the games are played, we're only six points and goal difference off of them. But yeah, it's the, the number of teams that we've got to break through that's the issue, as well as the fact that I'd be surprised if it is just six points coming well, uh,
0: well, I mean, it, it, it is worth caveating slightly that, um, that, that obviously we're now six points on the same games as everyone except for Bristol City and Reading. So this this kind of issue status quo as we find it right now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. I haven't really looked at it that way. Um, but yeah, after today's well, this weekend's games then we'll be we'll have an extra game to play than most teams. So I suppose that does help. Um and um, we were saying last week that the fixtures are actually quite promising looking into the the last run of the season. Um so there, I don't think I mean, last week we were very positive and this week we seem to be very negative, which is...
0: Well, I suppose know, because we've lost to a team that we shouldn't lose to, which, may, which makes you which makes you far less confident of going and beating Wigan, Huddersfield and Cardiff, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it does. But then I suppose that's where you can come back to the performance. The performance was very good, but we just need to be able to stick the ball in the back of the net. So I think if we, if we put the same level of performance in for the next three games, then... You know, we're not going to lose them all. Um, you'd hope that we'd win them all, to be honest, but that's not a given, is it? So obviously the work needs to be done in preparation for them and you need to perform throughout the whole of the pitch. But when you get to the end of the, in the penalty box, you need to be able to put the ball in the back of the net, which, you know, DK scored two against, well, I see he's getting a lot of blame for missing a couple of chances, which he did, but he scored two against Middlesbrough and Middlesbrough, one of the best teams in the division. So, i suppose that's where the frustration is as well that you can beat probably the most informed team in the division and then lose to what in fairness is a fairly weak horse side
0: i mean i would i wouldn't be putting too much blame on d k for, for for yesterday i actually think i actually think he was one of the one of the better ones i think uh, okay there's the one that's cut back to him that he should probably do better with, but generally speaking, i thought his chances were fairly difficult and he and he, he actually made something out of them. He's also had four shots on on goal, two on target. Um, as I say, only one of those I really feel he could have done more with. He's also played played two key passes. He he laid one absolutely on a plate for Jed Wallace, who uh, who, who scuffed it wide. I actually thought he had a decent game, Pete, and I feel like it's becoming one of these things where I, I hate how 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 some things always seem to split our fan base because Grady's another player that does this you, you you either fans seem to think or some fans seem to think and this is unfair to to tar everyone with the same brush but and this is probably more a twitter thing than anything else because twitter is the home of extreme opinions as we all know but people seem to think or some people seem to think you you have to be in one of two really quite extreme camps where these are either the greatest players ever, or they're absolutely abysmal. And I don't think Grady or DK fall into either category. Grady's not relevant because he was out injured. and Unfortunately, we might have lost him for the rest of the season, which we will come to the problem that creates on the left-hand side in a little bit. But on DK, I don't think he's doing that much wrong, Pete. Uh, you, you highlight it. We've we, we both done the numbers on this, in fact. He's actually scoring he, at a rate of um, of 157.8 minutes per game. Sorry, per goal, 157.8 minutes per goal is what he's scoring at. There's obviously 90 minutes in a game, so that means a DK is scoring at better than a rate of a goal every 90 minutes he's on the pitch. Now that's impressive by anybody's standards. That really is. Okay, he could have done better with one chance yesterday, but I thought he actually got into some good areas. And to be honest... I thought for uh, for the most important chunk of the game which again we'll come to in a second because I do I do slightly want to challenge your statement that we that we played well yesterday because I think there's a 24 minute period where we didn't and but we'll come to that in a second. But I think um for that important chunk of the game DK wasn't seeing the ball and I don't really see what people expect Daryl DK to do when he isn't seeing the ball. I think the evidence is there Pete that when daryl D k is given the given the ball, he has one point nine shots per game and he is scoring at a rate of better than a goal every two nineties and I don't really know beyond that what people expect from him. I think people look at him and go, he's only got five goals this season." Yeah, but he only came back just before the just before we broke up for the for the World Cup. He's missed huge chunks of the season. I don't think five goals at this at this stage is is particularly bad. In fact, it, you you said to me off air uh, that that you think if he'd been fit for the whole season, he may well be challenging Pom for top scorer in this league.
1: Yeah, it's obviously important to to note that he's he's not really played that much. He's played eight point eight. Ninety minutes this season, so a total of seven hundred eighty-nine minutes um, for Albion, and I'd be surprised if he.
0: So, so he scored five goals in. Let's call it for for argument's sake, nine nine games. I'm sorry if you if you just took that purely as a stat. If a player had just played nine full ninety minutes and stuck five goals in the back of the net, you would be absolutely singing from the hilltops about him, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, exactly, and. I mean, he's got one assist as well to add to that. So, But if you look at his... I mean, I'm just going to confuse things because I'm doing it the other way around to what you said. But he he scored...
0: We we need some Albion analysis, um, uh, generic way of doing data here, don't we, Pete?
1: (laughs) I think so. But um, he scored 0.57 non-penalty goals per 90 minutes. Um, So, I mean, that adds up with you. It's just over one every two games.
0: Well, whichever way you paint uh, paint the stats, basically, if he's scoring at better than a goal every 180 minutes, that's better than a goal every other game. And if Pete tells you it's better than 0.5, uh, go, uh, um, it takes him, uh, you know, better than 0.5, then he's scoring at better than a goal every other, uh, g- uh, g- every other every other game, which, let's be honest, we always, always use as the benchmark for strikers, don't we? I
1: tend to. And, I mean, if you... So it's 0.57 non-penalty goals for 90 for DK, and if you look at our next best, it's Brandon Thomas Sante, who's at 0.33. So I think that's quite a drop-off, especially when I would consider them to perform performing at a you know a similar level. I think the issue with Thomas Sante is he's taking less chances than DK is, which I think might surprise a few. He's you know underperforming his expected goals, whereas DKs overperforming it. And personally, that surprised me. I thought he'd missed a few chances and wasn't finishing as well as he should be. But
0: I I could be proved wrong on this though, Pete. I do feel like possibly that, that data was weighted with Brandon towards the early part of his Albion career, because I thought he missed a lot of chances um, early on his Albion career. I go back to, for example, the Luton game, um, Bruce's last game in charge, and he's fluffed a chance in the second half right in front of the Brummie road. I think I think since he scored that uh, that wonderful goal or, or the couple of wonderful goals um, against Stoke and Bristol City, I think he's a more confident uh, more confident player. I think I, I think I think if we if it, I think it'd be uh, it'd be interesting to see the post World Cup stats for Brandon.
1: Yeah, well, I I don't have the answer for that now, but you know I run the numbers and we'll put it out later this week. I think if I can get something put together, um, but. I mean the other thing with Thomas Desante is he takes penalties, which probably helps. I mean I think he's only scored one, but did he score a rebound off one as well, so
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I can't I can't remember actually who that was against off the off the top of my head, but he definitely did. It was it I think it was in a in a comfortable win.
1: Yeah, so I mean that probably helps the perception of him because it's an extra couple of goals added to it. I'm I'm not trying to say Thomas Asante is bad, I'm just trying to point out the, the goal scoring difference between him and DK and yeah,
0: when, when we're saying stuff like this, when it's not a criticism of the player, that what what we're what we're trying to say is that what Daryl DK is doing is actually quite difficult to do.
1: Yeah, and um, well as well as well, scoring goals, you mentioned against Tully, he, he laid that one off to to Wallace, um, which was a brilliant bit of hold up play, just to chest it down to Wallace, and to be fair, Wallace probably should have done better, kind of lashed at the shot and and put it into the stands. And I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think if I'm correct here, but I think he might have done a similar thing late on in the second half, and John Swift just completely missed the ball. Missed or his kick,
0: yeah, total air kick.
1: Yeah, um, so that was promising. And in build-up as well, in the first half, when we were dominate before the first goal, when we were dominating the ball in possession, um, there was a couple of bits of nice hold-up play there when it ball was played into him, and there was one time where he just completely spun the defender, but we just didn't seem to have anything anywhere for him to play the ball forward. I think especially in the first half and before the first goal of course because that kind of changed the momentum. We, we almost to runners in behind or, or lacked the the idea to play the ball in behind because I noticed in the second half DK started to make runs but just not get the ball and I think it might have helped to because the Hall played quite a high line which surprised me but if you play a few balls in behind and get runners onto it then you know you might force them to drop it a bit and
0: do we not play that early ball enough? I, I I found myself screaming at the TV last night, Pete. That um the, the there was there was a lot of I mean the, the the for me the first goal comes from from too too many. Uh, in fact, Corbrand actually said it after the after the game. He said we've played out from the back. The when the ball should have gone left, we've gone right, and that's caused us to lose the ball. I think we make some bad decisions when passing across the uh, across the back four from time to time. We play ourselves into trouble. And when you've got Daryl DK up front, who is tall, strong, quick, you know, and can powerfully hold off defenders, if you get—I'm not saying do this all the time because it's not the way we play—but if you do get yourself into a little bit of bother and uh, and the um and the option l- it closes itself down, why don't you pop it in behind or pop it into the channels for DK more often? We never seem to do it.
1: But even directly from the back, just after we've kind of moved up the field a little bit and we're still just in our own half but we're still trying to build up and there's not a lot of space and Hull have like compacted it because they're playing a high line and kind of yeah there's just not much space in the middle for players like John Swift to pick it up if you just play one over the over the top of the back line with a runner onto the end of it and you keep doing that even if you don't create chances every time you you've probably put in thoughts into the whole defenders do we need to drop this line a little bit? And
0: well, having, think, having having worked with enough centre-halves in my time, Pete, I'll tell you every single one of them will tell you that they hate players who turn them round. Like, every one of them would always, always rather defend against somebody who where they can defend with everything in front of them. Players that turn them round are a center half's biggest nightmare.
1: Yeah, and if you can force them to, to drop that line a bit because they don't want to be spinning and... In- Sprinting back every time, then that's when you get a bit more space for players like John Swift in between the lines and in, in midfield because that defensive line's dropped a bit. And then you can see if he can create a bit more from there. So I think, well, especially when you you're winning the ball back fairly easily, we dominated the possession and and seemed to press them quite well. And then win win the initial header when they decided to go along. So we're winning the ball back quite easily. I, I just think you can afford to take a few more risks except that you lose the ball a couple of times if you do play in behind just to, to get a bit more space in the middle for your creative
0: players. While we're talking about the data and the shooting data, Pete, I, I do want to bring us on to something. Jed Wallace, he has the highest shots per game of any Albion player. He has 2.1 shots per game. Yet his he's got five goals this season, which obviously is the same as DK and Brandon Thomas Asante in the league. Yet his minutes per goal... Bearing in mind, we've just said DK scores a goal every one uh, one hundred and fifty eight minutes, or all, all but the shouting. Jed takes one hundred and fifty seven and sorry, Jed takes five hundred and seventy nine and a half minutes per goal. So DK is at one hundred and fifty seven, one hundred and fifty eight minutes per goal. Jed is basically at five hundred and sixty minutes. Per goal. To put that in perspective, that's over a goal every six games. Now, you might say Jed Wallace is a midfielder. He's a wide man. He shouldn't be scoring at the st- you you shouldn't be holding him to the same standards as two forwards. But my point here is he has more shots every game than DK or Brandon Thomas Asante. Now, this is not. I'm not going to start getting on Jed Wallace's back. Far from it, because just to, just to show the other side of this, that Jed has the highest number of assists in our squad. He's only behind uh, John Swift for key passes. He completes more dribbles than uh, anybody other than Grady Dean Garner, who he is equal with in terms of completed dribbles. So he is a massive player to our team. And he brings much, much more than just goals. He's a fantastic footballer. However, in a game where we've just had 20 shot, sorry, 21 shots and not scored a goal, can't ignore the data just because I have a massive, massive love for a particular player. We've always said on this podcast, we will be even handed and wherever the data takes us, we will go. And Again, there's an argument to say if Jed could finish, he probably wouldn't be playing for West Bromwich Albion in the Championship because everything else he does is largely pretty fantastic. But, Pete, is it unfair of me to say if Jed Wallace is going to have 2.1 shots per game, he's got to score in better than once every six and a half matches?
1: I'm going to say it is slightly unfair because when you look at his expected goals, For the whole season, that's at 5.5 for Jed. And he scored five goals. So it's a very marginal underperformance. If he scores in the next game, he's probably a marginal overperformance. So it's about right. Um, So his finishing hasn't been uh, poor. But when you look at his expected goals per shot, it's at 0.08, which is among the lowest in the squad. Um, John Swift's Were they
0: shooting from the wrong areas then?
1: Well it suggests he's shooting from yeah, from range, um or from maybe poor angles, um, just you know, low quality places to shoot from. You've not got a high chance of scoring from where he's shooting from. But he's taking a lot of shots from there, so he's racking up a, a fair amount of expected goals for his position. So yeah, I'd say the argument's probably more that he's shooting from not great areas. Um
0: A bit of what Jim Lucas uh, warned us about, the Millwall fan who came on before the season started and said that um, uh, Jed can possibly get a bit of a hero complex sometimes.
1: Yeah, potentially. And I was actually thinking about that, watching the game, which was last night, based on when we were recording, but watching the whole game. um, And I didn't actually notice it too much. For some reason, that exact comment popped into my head and I thought, we're 2-0 down. Are we going to see it? But I don't think we really did. I think he still kind of played the ball and stuck to the seemed like the game plan um, but yeah in terms of his shooting it's I, th- I think he's just not taking shots from great areas but that also kind of comes with comes with being a, a winger or a attacking midfielder number 10 that he sometimes played in um, I think maybe earlier in the season when he was pu- purely under Bruce purely playing as a, a wide player I felt like he quite often got into some good positions because he was just kind of at the back post and Kind of drifting across and going one on one, um but maybe since then it's it's um you know he's taking more shots from range, and that's why he's got a fairly poor goals to shot ratio, whereas in fact his goals to his his expected goals is is pretty similar, and he's not actually finishing at that poor rate
0: fair enough, fair enough, we don't always have to agree on this pod and equally I'm going to challenge something something you said earlier, Pete, because you said that we played well. I think that's largely true. I think it's true before the first goal and I think it's true after the second goal. However, what I would suggest is that there was a period of 24 minutes in the game between the first goal on the 33rd minute and the second goal on the 57th minute where we were absolutely dreadful. We had a lot of shots in the game against Hull, 21 in total. However, only one of those came between the first goal and the second goal which like I say was a 24 minute period of, of football either side of half time um, I think there was two minutes of added time at the end of the first half so you can you can call it 26 if you want to be pedantic Hull also had four shots to our one in that period of time for me that's where we lost the goal Pete we di- sorry that's where we lost the game we didn't react to the first goal in the proper manner and we ended up conceding the second goal and and at the point at which hull sat back against us that's where where we battered them and should have and should have got probably got back into the game but you can't give teams two goal head starts and this is not the first time that we've seen albion react poorly to situations in games you only got to go back to the last away game ironically it was our goals we reacted badly to against watford but we've questioned in the past a mentality issue within this squad i do think it's got better there's no two ways about that i think i think we've moved out of this squad players that that are that that have a poor mentality and i think that you know we we've on the whole brought in some players like jed wallace like brandon thomas asante into the starting 11 who have a better mentality but Do I think there's enough leadership, in-game leadership within that squad at this moment in time? No, not for me. As I say, look, I'm, I'm always spoiled because I worked at the football club when we, uh, during a period where we had people like Chris Brunt, Ben Foster, um, Gareth McCauley, Jonas Olsen. Do you know what? It, 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 even Claudio Jacob, even though he struggled to speak a word of the Queens, was, uh, would absolutely take a game by the scruff of the neck on the football pitch. Um, Peter Ott and Wingy played through the middle with zero fear. You know, Shane Long, led by example, running around harassing defenders. We had a lot of players who either led through their voices and through what they said in the dressing room and the standards they set in training, or by playing the game with no fear on the pitch. I don't know whether we have enough of those types in this squad, and I think it's reflected in the fact that we reacted very, very poorly to the first goal and didn't really find our feet again in the game until the second goal went in. I think we saw it earlier in the season how bad we were early on in games and I think also we saw it in the last away game that when we would score against Watford and they would re-up the pressure that we didn't n- know how to cope with that I think I personally think it's reflective of a mentality issue w- within the squad and as I say it's not me getting on at them because I do think it's getting better but do I think we've we've improved the leadership and the standards in this squad enough to cope with those situations, no, I don't think we have.
1: I think I'd agree with you in the fact that there was that period in the middle of the game where we were we were poor, really. And, I mean, directly after the hall F- scored their first goal, they looked, they definitely looked the more likely to score the next goal. Um, but, yeah, I think, as you say, we've spoken about potential mentality issues. I don't know if that's why maybe Chalabra and Brighton were brought in, other than the fact that they were basically free. Um, obviously you've got a a Premier League winner there and actually I think both of them are Premier League winners, aren't they? So I think, yeah, I mean, Albrighton said he's not the kind of leader to to shout and, you know, demand loads of his players with his voice, but he has spoken about being a leader in the way that he, he plays and the way that he trains, that
0: and that's you know. massive. That's massive, Pete, because, uh, because I oh, was sorry, uh, apologies for jumping in, but I, I remember, I remember somebody, uh, you know, obviously I, uh, I would never betray the confidence of naming names, but the season we got relegated under, uh, under Pardue, I had somebody towards the end of that season saying one of the biggest mistakes we made was letting Shane Long go because he set the tempo in training. And, you know, I was told that the level, in training, not by a lot, but just by a small percentage, dropped off when Shane Long went, because he trained like he played every week and he 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 kept he kept defenders honest, he set standards for other forwards as well. And Shane, Shane was very softly spoken. He's a lovely, lovely man, and he's not he is not a shouter and a baller by any stretch of the imagination. He doesn't go around berating people. That's not what I mean by a leader. But if you can go out there and set the standards in training, I think that plays a massive part. And I agree. that I think there's probably something in that as to why we brought those in. And we are moving towards this. But what we saw on the pitch last night, I felt we hid after the first goal.
1: Yeah, and I think Paul kind of smelt that and, and went after us a bit more, pressed a bit more high, pressed a bit higher and um, shut off Jokuzlu a bit more. I think they were really passive with y- Jokuzlu in the first um, 30 minutes or whatever it was before the goal. He was kind of just given the freedom of the midfield to receive the ball off defenders and on some occasions turn and other occasions just play it back to them, which, I mean, if I was setting up against Albion and then I'd be thinking about trying to target you especially when he receives the ball off defenders because he can he can have those sloppy moments um, where he gives the ball away cheaply. I mean, he also does put in some really nice turns sometimes and, and opens the game up by doing that, but I, I think he, he'd be a bit of a target for mine in build-up um, because... A lot of the time he does do it really well, but he does does have occasional sloppy moments and they're quite passive before the first goal and, and let him have the ball. I think after the, the first goal they kind of cut him off a bit more, which we looked a bit puzzled about how we were gonna build up without him kind of being the first option most of the time. So I Was think that we... also
0: not helped by the fact that Jason Mulumby did not have his best game last night either.
1: Yeah, of course. Um yeah, it wasn't his best game and he's been he's been very good on the whole since Corbrand's come in. Um but yesterday he was just a bit a bit sloppy in possession. Um I think again he helped out on the right side when we were trying to attack and and getting there to create the overloads and the combinations down there. But in central areas he was a bit sloppy and um seemed a bit slow to, to second ball sometimes and, and kinda of react to players turning and dribbling. Um but yeah, of course that doesn't help. Um because if you cut if they cut off um your Kushlu then you need you need your other midfielders to kind of help and show for the ball it did drop into the back line a couple of times to to help out and furlong was pushing high but yeah I think you mentioned off off air and it's about solutions in the game you gotta gotta find solutions to what your oppo- opposition throw at you so when they cut off your Kushlu, you got to find the solution to how you're gonna build up without him there and after the their first goal, we we didn't seem to find the solutions and we got penned in a bit and, and looked fun, vulnerable. So, yeah, I think it's definitely a trend, trend that we need to fix, whether that be with it's just the coaching or maybe we need new personnel in that are going to react to conceding goals and going behind a bit better.
0: Yeah, and let, I mean, let's just talk about the two goals, Pete, because I have a bit of a bugbear with both of them. Um. I know I'm always slightly loath to overanalyze goals against because I'm a I'm a great believer that if you, uh, I, I mean it's ironic for a from a, for a podcast that's called helping analysis, but I do think that overanalysis is it is a problem in football that if you look hard enough at anything, and this is a problem VAR probably has as well, you can find something wrong with it. That being said, there was two glaring, glaring mistakes in the two goals for me. The first goal, the, the my issue is all for the whole of the first 20 minutes, Tete was largely anonymous because basically you, you spoke about this after the Coventry um, at, at home game where we we made the first contact so early with Jokeres and really nullified his threat that the, uh, the, Peters and O'Shea were really physical with him, didn't let him have a moment on the ball. And I thought we did that brilliantly with Tete for, 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 for the, basically the first 19 minutes of the game. Then for the goal, the ball goes up to Tete. And for some reason, and I can't fathom why, because it's not, it's totally opposite to everything he'd done up to that point. Dar O'Shea backs off. And lets him bring it down and chest it down, which then Yukoslu challenges the man on the ball. The ball goes through to Tete. And by the way, no blame at all attached to Josh Griffiths for me. It's a wonderful, wonderful hit across him into the back of the net. So I don't know what Dara's doing there. And then for the second goal, and this is again, is something we've talked about because you, you, you know, I'm, I'm one that does like Connor Townsend on that left hand side and I have bestowed his virtues but I can't defend him my issue is far less with what happens at the corner than how the corner comes about because the um I saw um I I, I saw somebody after the game it was someone on the sky punditry saying uh there's a question of offside on the second uh, uh, in the build up to the, the the corner on the second goal there's not does not. Look at it again from the far side angle. Connor Townsend is two yards behind the rest of his defenders and plays Tete. Tete sees that, steps into the space. So I don't blame the two centre-halves because they're doing the right thing. They're holding the line and they see Tete step beyond them and they go, well, he's no threat. He's offside. Not realising that Connor Townsend is in an insane position, two yards behind his back four. And he plays him on. Tete gets the shot away. um, uh, Griffiths makes a brilliant save. And they score from the resulting corner. We have been so good at home defensively. And some of the mental fortitude we have shown and discipline to not concede goals, particularly I'm thinking back to the Coventry game, where I think we allowed them one shot on target the whole match. The Middlesbrough game, where... We restricted one of the best attacking teams in the in the division, but Pete away from home, I don't know why. Because you, uh, but but we just seem to make these crazy mistakes. There was, there was mistakes you could pull out of the um, uh, the the uh, the Watford game in the last game, uh, away game where we conceded three goals, and uh, unfortunately Connor Townsend was highlighted then as well. And Dara has made a ridiculous decision for the first goal and Connor has made a ridiculous decision for the second goal. And I don't know why these things happen away from home because they don't do this at home.
1: Yeah, it's with Townsend, um, I've noticed it before, and I think I've mentioned it on this podcast that so, um he can quite often get caught out of line with the defensive line and therefore playing players on side, especially ones that he's not actually marking or defending against, which just completely upsets the the rest of the line, because they're probably thinking, oh, we're playing him offside, he's no threat. But if you got Townsend dropping a little bit deeper, then he's a real threat, because he can stand behind centre-backs and, and still be onside. Um, so that I think that's just, it seems to be a bit of a flaw in his game. You know, he's, he's very good at, in other aspects, but I've noticed that a couple of times. So hopefully that's something that can be worked on. Him and Corbran can work on it and, and probably kind of push it out of his game a bit. But yeah, it's just yeah. I mean, it makes a big difference when you're kind of dominating the game, and then you just get little silly mistakes that lead to lead to stuff and lead to goals happening, and that completely changes the momentum of the game. Do and... you have
0: any explanation for why Dara's not challenged for that header on the first first goal? Because it's completely out of line with everything that he'd done up to that point.
1: Yeah, I I struggled to see why. I don't know if he just kind of came at it from the the wrong angle he kind of had to drop in to get under the ball and then shift across and if he would headed it maybe it would have gone the wrong way but maybe I'm just trying to find an explanation when there isn't an obvious one there um because as you say first first 20 minutes or so Tete barely touched the ball because Peters and Darrow were just dominating him every time the ball went into him they either won it in the air or nipped in front of him and won it and were very physical with him um and that seems to be the case up until the referee gave a free kick against Peters, I think, for apparently climbing over the top of Tete to win the ball, I think it but, was.
0: But a free kick on the halfway line surely shouldn't impact them their mentality, should it?
1: I wouldn't have thought so, no, because it's not as if he got booked or anything for it. Um, it was just a, a single free kick. But after that, it seemed to it seemed to change. Um, and then obviously the goal came from it as well, which if, if that had been in the first 20 minutes, you'd have thought that O'Shea would have been up and heading it clear and nothing would have come of it but as you say he just had all the space in the world to just bring it down for his teammate. And and then well after that you know there was a they got a bit of luck with the tackle falling straight for them but it was a great finish I tend to agree with you there's probably not a lot that Griffiths could have reasonably done it it was hit hard and right to the top corner so but yeah it was a strange one because as you say start of the game Tete barely touched the ball and and our centre-backs were, I thought they were having great games and being very physical and definitely winning winning that individual battle against the striker. Um, and then they seemed to, to lose it in one situation and, and that cost us a goal.
0: The other issue that I have from, uh, from yesterday uh, is that you mentioned it before, Pete, that we were heavily, heavily concentrated down the right-hand side, much more than usual. In fact, to the point where... When I actually looked at the average position data, because you know I love to bring the average position data in, not least because you don't love it. <laughs> so, you know, I I just gotta throw it in there from time to time. But when you look at the average position data, the only players who whose average position was left of the center spot were Peters and Townsend. Now, I accept the fact that there is that you've got to take data with the mitigating factors. And the mitigating factor here is that we actually swapped. The left sided player's position quite a lot, um, during, during the course of the game. So that is going to impact where their average position is. I, I appreciate that. But nonetheless, even when you look at our, our, our attacking thirds, the, it, the right hand side is much, much more prominent than, than anything else. And I think it speaks to an issue on that left hand side. We talked about this after the, the Watford game where I think, we have to be careful about over-accommodating Mark Albrighton. I I really like Mark Albrighton, but on the face of it at this moment in time, I'm kind of, I'm slightly questioning the signing because I don't see how he fits in, given that his best position is where our best player in Jed Wallace plays. I, I, I don't, I don't really get it. Um, Unless, of course, we end up doing what we did in the last sort of 10 minutes and going to three at the back and playing Albrighton as a wing-back, which actually I thought worked quite well, to be honest. He does give us options in that sense. But at the moment, playing our usual shape, I don't think he fits in this team unless Jed Wallace is injured, Pete. That's my personal opinion. Because there was a period, that bad period of the game between the first and second goal... Ironically, between the thirty-third minute and half time, we, we went back to doing what we did and moving a load of players out of position to accommodate Albrighton. So Albrighton went to his best position on the right. Wallace went into the ten, and Swift went onto the left-hand side, where we don't get the best out of either of them, in my humble opinion. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, my personal opinion at this moment in time, Pete, and this won't go down wonderfully, I'm sure, with uh, with, with with some of his detractors is that whilst we've got this injury crisis, which seems to be massively focused on one area of the pitch, losing Phillips, Garner, and Grant, all of whom can play that left-hand side of a forward, uh, left-hand forward position. Well, you might question that on Grant and you'd be, you'd have every reason to, but nonetheless, it is probably his most natural position on the pitch. Whilst those three players are out, Pete, I Personally, I'm just putting myself up to be shot here. I would rather see Adam Reach starting over Mark Albrighton on that left-hand side. And I, by the way, I thought Reach did well when he came on. Okay, he's missed an absolute sitter. That he uh, He's gone for it with his right. He hasn't made good contact with it at all. He should score. But he's had three shots when he's come on. I thought he got really involved in the play. I thought he looked threatening. And... I personally, purely based on balance, because I think we look better when we're balanced, I think that Reach should start over Albrighton whilst Phillips, Dean Garner and um, and, uh, Grand throughout injured. And I would also like to say on Grady, Dean Garner, because I saw some ludicrous comments on Twitter, people saying, oh, if he's out for the season, we won't miss him. We missed him so much last night. Give your head a wobble if you think that because Grady is a massive loss.
1: Yeah, it was huge, and we barely had anything going down the left, especially in that second half. Every single attack seems to come down down the right, which, I mean, in a way probably made sense because we'd got Wallace drifting out there, Albright and playing out on the right, and Gardner-Hickman for a lot of it also drifting out to the right, so we'd got a lot of players out there and a lot of players that can cross the ball if we create the right situation, but... It just meant that we're pulling all the whole defenders out there as well and it felt like if we could just have somebody stretching the play on the left as well and almost just holding that width and being an option out there, they'd either have a lot of space or it'd pull the whole defence not all the way out there, but you know, keep them keep it in the back of their mind that we've got a player that we can get the ball out there to and, and if it was Grady and it was up against one defender, then you'd fancy his chances to get past him at least a couple of times and and deliver from there. Yeah, we looked very unbalanced and quite predictable in the way that we wanted to attack, especially in that second half. First half, Townsend kept the width on the left quite quite well, but it was the only stuff we really had going down there was, was switches out to him and then trying to attack from there. We, we didn't really build up from the left-hand side or play down the left-hand side apart from those long switches. Um, and it, it felt like we needed someone that can... It felt like we need almost needed a left footer out there as the winger just to... Help keep that width, and, and
0: uh, that's the... what that's what I'm saying, Pete. I, I know it's I know it's really old school to say left footers on the left, right footers on the right, but that's that's how I feel about us at the moment. I feel we look unbalanced without that.
1: Yeah, when we do have that, then we tend to have Swift in the ten, but he t- quite a lot of the time he drifts out to the left anyway. So then we've got the right footer there as well. But yeah, it did feel unbalanced, and I do think that reach probably could impact that just because he's left footed and he'll be happy to keep the width Um and you know he'll be happy to do the defensive work out there as well Phillips obviously right footed was playing really well out there but he was also very happy to go on the outside of his man and and put a an across with his left foot so that's kind of where Albrighton and...
0: well, well the other thing with Matt Phillips is Pete that, that we all know there is absolutely no answer to the Matt Phillips chop and the Matt Phillips step over
1: <laughs> Yeah very true Um yeah but with Albrighton he um he seems quite uncomfortable to go on his left foot, um and almost always wants to, to go on his right foot when he was playing out on the left. So that's very predictable and in a way quite easy to, to defend. So I'd be happy with the left foot out there, left foot left footer out there. Uh, but I suppose it's the, the question of whether that extra balance is is worth it for putting in what's probably a, a lower quality player in Adam Reach compared to Mark Albrighton. So is the balance more important than than the actual quality of players out on the pitch, and judging on the performance—well, not necessarily the performance, but the balance of last night—I'd say it probably is, and I'd probably look to to give Adam Reach a chance out there.
0: I think the other thing for me is that, as you, because uh, you, you mentioned him there, is when the balance is there in the midfield, I think it benefits John Swift, and for me at the moment, Pete. I think we've got to do everything we can to benefit John Swift because we talked about him after the Middlesbrough game where I thought his his contribution to the two goals was absolutely tremendous and if you are pulling out a real positive from the whole game it has to be John Swift because it, there is there's no debate for me that he was our man of the match I thought I, I thought if you you're pulling out players who had really good games I thought Swift, I thought Yukoslu, apart from a period where he he was iffy when they when they closed him down, as you mentioned, after, after the first goal. And I do maintain that DK did not have anywhere near as bad a game as some people would say. I think after that, you're probably stretching a little bit to find players who played well. But Swift is the one where I genuinely say he stood out and had a really good performance. And the data backs that up for me. 10 crosses, five of which were accurate, four long balls, three of which were accurate. That's tremendous, by the way. Three key passes, um, nearly 90% pass completion rate. He also had three shots during the course of the game as well. He's just, he makes us tick at the moment. Um, and, um, and look, some, some people might say, Oh, we didn't tick last night. Well, we did, but we didn't, we didn't for 25 minutes in the middle uh, where, where we lost the game. That was really, really poor, and nobody's gonna nobody's gonna start hiding from that. But the point is, when we're playing well, John uh, John Swift is getting on the ball and he's contributing. And what I would say to anybody who says, "Okay, but we lost the game in that in that period after the first goal," look where John Swift goes and plays. Carlos makes a switch, sends Albrighton out to the right. Wallace into the 10 and Swift goes uh, off onto the left-hand side, where he, for me, he is nowhere near as effective. And shock horror, we have one shot in that period of the game. Bearing in mind, we had 20 shots in the rest of the game, where Swift was largely playing in the 10. I don't think it's any coincidence uh, for me that our least fertile period of the game was when... John Swift was out of that 10 role. And we have to play him there because at the, at the moment, Pete, for me, on form, he's our best player. What do you think?
1: He seemed to be really confident last night. And I know that Corran, I think he made a few comments about him in uh, pre-match interviews and in the week um, about saying basically that he can be one of the best, or he is the best um, midfielder in the championship when he's, when he's on form. And I don't know if that seemed to have benefited him um, because he looked very confident. He he wanted to get on the ball a lot and impact the game. And you know, there's a couple of turns in there that were, you know, they're impressive and, and kind of the sign of a player that is confident and feels like he's got a bit of freedom of just to, um, just to enjoy his game as well as you know, he's, some players just go about the performance and just keep it very very steady, do do everything right. But you know, it's a bit of showboating almost and. And I think that's a sign of a player that's enjoying playing football and is very confident. And other than that, his actual, um, performance was very good as well. You know, he, he looked to get on the ball in dangerous areas and play passes through and, um, just get involved a lot. He was, he seemed to be everywhere, dropping deep to, to help him build up and then getting there in the final third as well. That's
0: well. what that 10 roll gives him the opportunity to do, doesn't it? Because if you, the problem is if you're on the left hand side, you've got a very defined, position where you where you've got to be you've got to back your full back up as well but in that 10 it gives him absolute freedom doesn't it and i i think when you've got somebody of of john swift's talent and look jed wallace is a magnificent footballer but he can't do what john swift can i think john swift can just drift anywhere on that football pitch and influence the game um, you talked, it was interesting. You talked last week, Pete, about the peripherals that maybe Jed Wallace doesn't have, that he has sort of like a 90 degree, uh, sorry, 180 degree view of the, of the pitch rather than a 360 degree view. I I, th- I think John Swift's like a flipping owl. He can like rotate his head on uh, the, the, the 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 full the full way around, can't he? He's, it, it, I I think what he can do, I don't think anybody else can do in in the squad, and I think it's a massive waste to not have him in that ten.
1: Yeah, naturally, quite a lot of the time he drifts out to the left and supports the left. Um, but I think it's important that he does have the freedom to kind of move where he feels like he needs to be because he's such a good player and so confident on the ball and generally extremely tidy in his his play. He doesn't give the ball away cheaply very often, um, but then he can show that he's he's got the, the quality to really impact the game as well um, and take players on when it matters and in positions where it's, you kind of got the, the freedom to do that. So I think he's definitely better when he's playing in the tent and allowed to to drift where he feels like he needs to be, that's when he picks up good positions and um, I mean, we didn't see it against Hall but you, quite often when he's playing at that 10 he makes those late runs into the box and um, Wallace picks him out with the cutbacks and it creates good chances I think he had did he, he had one against Watford I can remember um, I can't remember if he not that two, to be honest.
0: Yeah, he did. He had he had he had one which very un John Swift like. He he just he just got he got way underneath it.
1: Yeah, and then I think he had one saved in the second half as well. Um, but he's at least a couple of his goals this season have come from from that similar kind of setup. I know the first one in the first game of the season was it against Middlesbrough when he scored yeah, it. And was... wasn't
0: the Millwall away goal similar as well?
1: Yeah, I remember. There's definitely been a few that he's he scored like that, and it's. You know, it's got similarities to what Frank Lampard used to do, arrive late in the box and, and just kind of be unmarked and, and get a free shot from, you know, around the penalty spot. And it's a really good good area to arrive in if you get there at the right time. So, yeah, I think it's important that he's, he's got that freedom to do that. And um, to be honest, he was seemed very unlucky to not have a goal from that free kick that, that hit the post. You know, if it's just a few millimetres... Further inside, it hits the inside of the post and goes in rather than bouncing out.
0: Well, let's talk about that, Pete, because I've got I've got an incredible bit of data on this. If, uh, if by the way, if anybody wants to prove me wrong on this, but from what I can see, we have not scored. A direct free kick since Matias Pereira away at Everton on the nineteenth of September, twenty twenty. So we are basically two and a half years without a direct free kick scored. Now, when you think about some of the players that we've had in that time, we've had Pereira himself for the rest of that season. We've had Swift. We've had Wallace. We've we've had Alex Moat who can uh, who can strike a ball. Um, we. we Carlin Grant, who's uh, who's who's had enough digs from these free kicks. How on earth have we not scored a free kick in two and a half, a direct free kick in two and a half years, Pete? Yeah,
1: it's, it's a bit of a strange one. I mean, when we had Mateus Pereira, he seemed to score every other free kick. I remember the one that was, was it against Bristol City at home where he just, right on the edge of the box, and he just,
0: Dinked almost passed again. It
1: into, yeah just dinked it into the top corner and it was just such a such a delicate free kick and then you got the
0: the one against was, QPR as well did he, uh, did, he uh, did he go under the wall with that one am I am I right in thinking
1: yeah I think he did and then there was the one against that you mentioned against Everton where that must have been about 30, 30 plus yards out wasn't it and oh it was a scorcher it wasn't top it corner. so he seemed to have everything in his locker when it came to free kicks he could do what he want with them and, and score them but yeah we've struggled since then and
0: but we've got players good enough to score. I mean, I mean, that's the first time we've seen John Swift really, really threaten the goal with a, uh, with a, with a free kick. Uh, you know what? I, I know I've just spent the last five minutes uh, singing John Swift's praises, but he's got to do that more often, hasn't he?
1: Well, I mean, maybe it was one of the reasons that we signed him because I'm trying to find the numbers now, but against Reading, uh, for Reading, he, he scored a lot of free kicks and was a bit of a free kick specialist. Um, which would, you know, make it quite a smart sign in because obviously we don't already have one in the squad. So it makes sense to bring one in, but yeah, we've just not really seen too much of it from him. Um, and hopefully we can in the future because based on, on what he did at Reading, he's a very good free kick taker. And I mean, the one against Hall was, was a very good free kick. It's just. Just needs to be a few a few centimeters the other way, and it's it's in, and the keeper's probably not getting near. I mean, it, it's so, so
0: unlucky. Pete. Even when it hit the post, I thought it was going to hit the inside and go into the net.
1: Yeah, and that's just it seemed to be how the game went. To be honest, against Hull, it was just it felt like we could you know play till midnight and and not score a goal, even with the chances that we're creating. But you know, that's football. Sometimes you you create a lot of chances, but you don't score, and you get punished for it.
0: We said on the last pod that uh, we weren't overly worried. By the away form that we kind of mitigated the the away form with the fact that we played Burnley and Watford. Obviously, the Birmingham game was concerning, but I, I you know, I personally wrote that off due to the the events of the week. I have to say, this is becoming I, it. It's completely almost blown that argument out the water to lose this game two 0 It's really really worrying, isn't it, Pete? Four defeats. On the spin in the league, away from home, five. If you want to count the Bristol City game, it's it's. I mean, however good we're being at the Hawthorns, and and this is heaping loads of pressure on us as well when we play at the Hawthorns. It it it's, it's killing our our promotion push. It's c- killing our playoff push, and it also means that we literally have to win every home game to have any chance. I, I, as I say, I th- I, I honestly think. Nine points from the next nine available before, before we have a bit of a break in fixtures and hopefully, hopefully get some players back as well after that two week break uh, when we, when we play Millwall at the Hawthorns. But we've got to get nine points from nine, but we've just, we've got to start, we've got to start winning some away games. We haven't got bad away, uh, away fixtures, but as, as we said at the top of the program, it kind of dents your confidence that we will go and win them when we go away to Hull, who no disrespect to them, but that that's that's a whole side that's massively inferior to this Albion side. It's a whole side we should be turning over. And we lose. And we lose 2-0, throwing the game away in a 25 minute period in in the middle of the match. And we he's gotta find some some solutions, Pete. I, I'm I'm a little bit I can't really offer any, any suggestions because I don't, because when you look at a game and you've had 21 shots, as I say, the big, the big thing for me, where we've, where we've lost this game, one, we can't seem to finish. And I don't really understand why, because there was enough good chances in that game. As I say, to leave the game with, a, with, with 2.3 XG, you've got to be scoring at least one of those chances. But then also to give Hull two games with such. Uh, two goals with such glaring errors these are things that don't happen at home at home we eventually grind down the opposition and find a way to score and at home we just don't make we we certainly don't make two massive errors like that in a game okay occasionally we make the odd one you think back to Malumbi's pass for for the Blackburn goal or whatever but I'm thinking through the away games that that we've lost and whether it's the complete breakdown in communication that led to coventry's penalty whether it's so, uh, connor townsend's failed clearances against watford whether it's um w- w- whether it's the two mistakes last uh, last night whatever whatever it might be whether it's david button just having an absolute mare against birmingham Teams aren't beating us, Pete. We're beating ourselves away from home, and we're not at home, and I don't really get the difference.
1: No, and it seems to me that it's happening too much for it to just be um, just a coincidence. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a difficult one. because It's not like teams are coming at us loads when we're away from home. It just seems to be that there's a mixture of games we're playing against, a mixture of opponents, and, and we're doing stuff that's, that's almost letting ourselves... Down and meaning that we drop points, um, so it's it's probably starting to become a bit of a concern. Um, luckily, I think the fixtures aren't. We're not playing the toughest of teams away from home going into the end of the season, but we still need to be picking up points um, regardless. Really, um, isn't doesn't matter who we're playing up. We've played teams that aren't the strongest away from home recently, and and not picked up three points. So it, it yeah, it's starting to become a bit of a worry, especially with you know coming into the end of the season where we are chasing the playoffs and there's a number of teams chasing the playoffs as we've spoken about and we need to pick up as many points as possible and climb above all of those teams so we can't just be doing that at the Hawthorns because yeah we're very strong there um, our defence seems to be almost unbreachable at the Hawthorns at the minute and yeah we look we look like we're confident at the Hawthorns and, and like we're going to pick up three points whenever we play at home but away from home it's it's very different and Whatever the issue is, I can't put my finger on it, but well, it needs to be found and it needs to be addressed and we need to start picking up some more points when we're on the road.
0: That's why Carlos has paid the big bucks, mate. And that's why we aren't, because uh, hopefully he can come up and find, uh, come up with and find that solution. Of course. He hasn't got to solve a problem for an away game for for a little bit um, because we now have back-to-back home games. Wigan at home on Tuesday and then Huddersfield at home on the following Saturday. As is always the case, unfortunately, with our busy schedules, we, we can't do podcasts after every game. So we will be back after the Huddersfield game when hopefully hopefully fingers crossed we'll have six points to reflect on because i think if we don't we'll probably be having a podcast where we have to ask the question is our playoff push over fingers crossed we don't have to have that conversation and we're talking about six points after those two games but until then thanks for listening and off the baggies by fans.